Good morning. That's good. That's good. There's some life there. Uh, it's so good to be with you again. For those of you who I haven't had the chance to meet before, my name is Brad. Uh, I'm a pastor in the Mount Pleasant neighborhood in Vancouver, and I've been able to be here at Cascades a number of times now to the point where it's starting to feel like a little like extended family visit when I come. And so thank you for having me. Thank you for always being so gracious and hospitable when I'm here. Uh, my my daughter was supposed to come with me today, and you would have just really met a whirlwind and a half. Uh, but I got too late to start this morning, so I came on my own. But next time, next time I promise I'll bring at least one member of my family. We have a three-month-old son now, new. So I think since the last time I was here, things have changed a little bit for me. So if I look more tired, you'll understand why. Um, but yeah, I'm really excited to break into the text today. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, turn to Luke 24. I'm going to read that in a little bit. But it's fun as we celebrate at Advent and we celebrate at Christmas because it really is the most wonderful time of the year. And as much as that's a quote from one of my personal favorite songs from the 60s that we sing every year, and that song's honestly far more about accessories to the season, you know, like it sings about parties and marshmallows and carols and it lists all kinds of things. But as people who gather in a place like this, who know the cosmic realities behind the story of Christmas, and who know the God that set those cosmic realities in motion, we'd know that Christmas truly is the most wonderful time of the year. Or as Daryl Johnson would go so far as to title his Advent reader that I go through each year, it's the most wonderful time of all years, is Christmas. It's the time where we celebrate that our God came near for the love of the world. Advent, the word that we use, is, is based on this ancient Latin word, and it's broken up. It's ad is a preposition that means to, and then vent is a verb meaning to come. It literally means to come. At Advent, we remember that God came to us. That God came to us. That the baby Jesus, who can, if we're honest, so often feel like a peripheral figure— in the ways that we celebrate and rejoice in this season. But baby Jesus came to bring God to us in the fullest and most holistic possible way. And that it's not finished, it's not over, that he will come to us again. The baby Jesus represents both hope fulfilled and hope renewed. Both peace on earth and peace to come. Both joy in much and joy in little both love from God and love for God. It's the most wonderful time of all years because the baby Jesus represents a complete transformation of our relationship to everything else, to time, to death, to life, to one another, and most importantly, to God. It's the most wonderful time of all years because the story at the epicenter of this season brings a complete transformation to how we live in this world. And the baby in that manger invites us to live here and now and all year round with the Christmas spirit. And the Christmas spirit, by that I mean not some vaguely warm feeling of sentimentality about this time of year, but the Christmas spirit as best described as a spirit of hope and peace and joy and love. 
Four characteristics fully on display in the Advent story. Four characteristics and themes we celebrate in the candles at Advent each year. Four historic themes of the season on our church calendar. And this morning, I'm excited to dig into one of those themes together. The theme of hope. For the love of the world, our God came near. This is the Advent season, my friends. And so I want us to pray, and then we're going to dive into the Advent theme of hope together. So would you pray with me? Uh, Lord God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for your presence among us. Thank you for this opportunity to gather and sing songs of rejoicing in the good news of this season. And Lord, most of all, we thank you for the hope that your coming and your presence with us brings. The hope that we get to live with each day of our lives because of the good news of Advent, the good news of Christmas. We pray, come Holy Spirit, I just pray that you would do a transforming work in our hearts today as we learn from your word. And we just pray all this in your name. Amen. So I'm going to read from Luke 24, and it may seem like a strange place to turn, talking about Advent, talking about Christmas, the birth of Jesus. This isn't Luke 1 and the Bethlehem story. This is Luke 24. It's actually after the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. And it might seem like a strange place to turn, but I think it'll make sense as we go. But I'm going to read Luke 24, verses 13 to 27. So if you want to follow along with me, please do. It says this, Now that same day, again, this is right after the resurrection of Jesus. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And they talked and discussed these things with each other. Jesus came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. Their faces down, I think that's interesting wording. Think about how discouraging and disappointing this moment in time must have felt all the good news and hope of this Jesus. And now he's been put to death. He's dead. And they, they stood their faces downcast. The disappointment is palpable. And one of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? Jesus asked. I just imagine this kind of sly smirk on Jesus' face when he asked, what things? About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet. No, they don't say king. They say prophet. Powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it's the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they'd seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, How foolish you are and how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. This is the word of the Lord. We had hoped. I don't know if you caught that line in the middle there. 
we had hoped. We had hoped. We had hoped our family could have all been together at Christmas this year. We had hoped the Canucks would have won a Stanley Cup by this point in our lives. That's a real one. It's from my personal diary. We had hoped that things would have worked out with that person. We had hoped that our business or project would have seen more growth this year. We had hoped that we'd have another job by now, a better one. We had hoped that injustice would end generations ago. We had hoped that our marriage would last. We had hoped that our children would grow up to follow Jesus. We had hoped that we'd find a spouse long before now. We had hoped that progress would lead nations to finally stop warring with one another. We had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. The name for that feeling of of letdown and confusion and angst and sadness is disappointment. Now, the temptation to full-on despair is a strong pull, especially in certain moments of history. Let's be honest, when I'm setting up ceramic baby Jesus, knowing that somewhere someone is grieving a baby beheaded by a terrorist, I feel a great temptation to despair. But that kind of despair, I think, is far more familiar to certain wirings of people than others, but it lurks ready to pounce at any moment for most of us. But that level of despair, quite that level of despair, I'd say is not, probably not normative for most people. What is normative for most people is disappointment. This is a familiar feeling, that feeling of letdown. And part of the difficulty as we live our lives and experience this kind of disappointment and letdown comes from the fact that in the, in the secular view of reality, suffering that we experience in life has no meaning or purpose. There's no meaning or purpose to life other than survival and pleasure, and suffering has no role to play in either of those things. And so when you come up against the difficult things in life, against relational brokenness or death or unemployment, we have no meaning to assign to our pain. It's just pain. It's just a roadblock to what we think that life is all about. But the tough pill is that if you expect ease and upward mobility in life, Life can be quite hard. Because at some point, the trajectory of life is not constantly up and to the right. I don't know if you've experienced this yet, but you will. The trajectory of life is not constantly up and to the right on the graph. It's full of suffering and setback. No matter what buffers you've built into your life to preserve and protect, no matter how much money or education or whatever you have that you've built to protect, but when you expect life to be hard, when that's your expectation, ironically, it's not all tough pills. For the most part, it's actually very beautiful. But what was interesting, and I'd say hopeful about the pandemic as we experienced it in the last few years, was that so many things that we had built up and put our hope in let us down, like gloriously let us down. The myth of progress Politics to solve our problems, this idea that that's where our hope can be placed. The progressive human project to solve injustice once and for all. The way that we do church to be right and to save the world. 
all these things we had placed our hope in over the years, maybe unbeknownst to us, we saw gloriously let us down. We found that we too are human and fragile and deeply in need of the mercy of God. But what's a bit troubling to me, if I'm honest, is that after all that happened in the pandemic and we saw these things that we put our hope in let us down, they were blatantly exposed as faulty, unable to fulfill our expectations, unable to bear the burden of our hopes. A couple years removed, and we've already returned to our position deeply entrenched in them. It doesn't take long with us. Because what if, in that, in that sense as well as many others, what if disappointment can actually be a good thing? What if there's a secret gift in disappointment that we experience in this life? What if disappointment is a physical signal from our body that our hope was actually set on the wrong objective? Because our hope isn't nebulous. I think most of us have learned this. Our hope isn't nebulous. It must have an object. We must place it in something or someone. Our hope has to have something or someone to attach itself to, to aim at a better future over the horizon. And what if disappointment carries with it this gentle invitation from the Holy Spirit? To recenter our hope, the orientation of our heart toward the future, to recenter it and our energy for the present onto God. To take it back away from the other things we've placed it in that have let us down or will, and to recenter it on God. It's interesting, a synonym for, for disappointment that we often use is disillusionment. And we all think of disillusionment as a bad thing, right? It's a, it's a word that means a bad thing. But if we actually parse the word out, it's not all bad. It's disillusion. It's really to be disavowed of our illusions to face reality, which I would say is not a bad thing. Remember, the enemy's specialty is illusion. Jesus' specialty is truth. He says, you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. What if when we feel disillusionment, rather than asking why has God let me down? Where's God in this? What if instead we asked, where am I living in an illusion? Where was my hope tethered to the wrong object? Now, this is where as a pastor, I wish that, it, that as followers of Jesus, it was just as easy as saying, all right, that's it. Our hope's in Jesus, and he'll never let us down. Done. Come on, that's beautiful. Call Greg up. We'll respond with a song. Out we go. It's that simple. We put our hope in, in Jesus, our hopes in Jesus, and he'll never let us down. It's that easy. I do wish it was that simple. But let's be honest and not religious for a moment. Do you ever feel, at least at an emotional level, like God has let you down? It's not a trick question. I do. I do feel that from time to time. I sure have had feelings and times in my life where I feel like God has let me down. See, even when our hope is in Jesus, we often relate to these two disciples on the road to Emmaus, saying, we had hoped that Jesus would fill in the blank. We had hoped that Jesus would show up in this way, or show up in that way, in the ways that we hoped. It's interesting, you notice in this text that Luke doesn't name the second disciple. We see Cleopas and no name for the second disciple. And most likely, this is a literary move that's literally designed to have the reader imagine himself or herself 
as the anonymous second disciple. Imagine ourselves in the story. Anonymous in that that unnamed disciple is you. That unnamed disciple is me. And most of us come to a point somewhere along our road where we feel let down by Jesus. This is why most of the first century Jews rejected him. They refused to believe that he was the Messiah because Jesus had let them down. He didn't lead an army. He didn't rally an army. He didn't defeat Rome. He didn't even campaign for lower taxes in an era where some historians argue the tax rate was as high as 80 or 90 percent, and a vast majority of the nation of Israel was living in some form of oppression, living hand to mouth in their own land due to the Roman occupation. And yet Jesus barely said anything about politics. Jesus came and Jesus went, and Rome was still in power. It was still oppressor and oppressed. And because of this, many rejected Jesus. If this is what the king is, if this is what the kingdom is, it doesn't look like I imagined or wanted it to. Frankly, I had hoped it would be different. It's not for me. And what I think we need is what Paul writes in Romans 5, verse 5. Paul, a Jew who did ultimately accept Jesus and come to believe that he was the Messiah. What we need is what Paul describes in Romans 5 as a hope that does not disappoint us. A hope that does not disappoint us. Which raises the question, what is hope? As we talk about hope at Advent, what is hope? Or at least what is the kind of hope that does not disappoint us? What is the hope of Advent? And how do we keep this hope alive in a world full of hardship and war and look forward to a brighter future as we approach a new year? See, while our world frames hope as some kind of blind positivity or even wishful thinking, the scriptures speak of hope in a very different way. John Mark Comer in his book, My Name is Hope, defines hope as used in scripture as, quote, the expectation of coming good based on the person and promises of God. The expectation of coming good based on the person and promises of God. Hope is almost this emotional energy that's based in the future, but fuel for the present. Eugene Peterson writes about this brilliantly. It's a little bit of a longer quote, but he writes this. He says, hope is a response to the future, which has its foundation in the promises of God. It looks to the future as time for the completion of God's promises. It refuses to extrapolate either desire or anxiety into the future, but instead believes that God's promises give the proper context to it. It's really important. But he continues, but hope is not a doctrine about the future. Interesting. It is grace cultivated in the present. It is a stance in the present which deals with the future. As such, it is misunderstood if it's valued only in the comfort it brings, as if it should say, everything's going to be all right in the future because God's in control of it. Therefore, relax and be comforted. Hope operates differently. Christian hope alerts us to the possibilities of the future as a field of action and as a consequence fills the present with energy. It's a beautiful and interesting way to think about Christian hope. It's that energy in the present that we as humans, quite frankly, need to keep going. 
survival's not enough for us. We need hope that things will get better going forward. And so the question is not, do you hope? I think that's actually a ridiculous question. The question is not, do you hope, but what do you put your hope in? What do you put your hope in? All hope has an object. As followers of Jesus, we are declaring that our hope is not in the stability of our economic standing or lack thereof. It's not in the political landscape to continue to improve our lives. These hopes will disappoint. Our hope is in God. Our hope is in the person and promises of God. But like we said, that statement can be a little bit more religious than emotionally honest. What does it actually mean to have our hope in God? Other than this kind of trite statement to throw out when a friend is downcast, like the disciples on the Emmaus Road. Oh, it's okay. Don't worry. Our hope is in God. What does it actually mean? Our hope is in God, which means, like I said earlier, that our hope is in the person and the promises of God. And while that means so much if we parse it out, quite literally what our preaching every week of the year attempts to do. For this discussion of hope at Advent, I want to outline three things briefly that we mean when we say that our hope is in God. What does hope at Advent mean? Three truths that we're standing on when a friend is going through it and we say, it's okay, our hope is in God. Three things we mean when we say that. Firstly, our hope is in the fact that Jesus will return to make all things new. Jesus will return to make all things new. In this sense, hope flows quite neatly into another theme of the Advent season, the theme of peace. In Revelation 21.4, it says, He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Hope that Jesus will return to make all things new. And then it also flows very nicely into the Advent theme of joy as well. Isaiah 51.11 says, Those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. And sorrow and sighing will flee away. Hope sets the tone for and even creates the others. Hope, peace, joy, love. We hear this talked about all the time, but I think one of the ills of the last 100 years in our culture is that even within the church, quite frankly, is that we've slipped into what theologians call an over-realized eschatology, which is basically an overemphasis on the now instead of the not yet. Or the to come. A look at the world and at life that, that demands perfect fulfillment here. Here in the now. Because here is all, we're, all we get. Or at least it's all we're guaranteed. Or at least it's all that matters to me right now. So we demand that all of our hopes and demands are fulfilled here. And things of the supernatural or things beyond this life, which governed and motivated life in our world for thousands of years, have kind of faded into disbelief or at least irrelevance. And now we operate in this, what is often called this imminent frame. What I can see and touch is the reality which governs my thought and action. It's what matters to me. And very few of us think about what comes beyond our life on earth, even Christians. Very few of us think on a regular basis about the hope of Jesus' return. 
The psalmists and the great hymn writers of the past used to think about this all the time. I think we very rarely think about it, and I speak for myself in this. But the thing is, we don't just miss something small when we do this. Quite frankly, we miss it all. Hope that does not look over the horizon to the life to come is actually not Christian hope at all. It's more like secular humanism with a little twist of Christianity in there. As Paul put it himself in 1 Corinthians 15, 19, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we're most to be pitied. Paul says if there's no resurrection, and yes, he's talking about the resurrection of Jesus at Easter, but this whole chapter in 1 Corinthians 15 is actually talking about the bodily resurrection of followers of Jesus when he comes again. He says if there's no resurrection of the dead, no hope for life to come, then all of this, all that you're doing, all that I'm doing, all of my preaching, all of my following Jesus is in vain. The New Testament, not just Paul, but everywhere, is saturated completely with the hope of the life to come and the return of Jesus. We're coming up on a new year, and I don't know how you feel about New Year's resolutions or, or what, but I know that for many people, the new year represents a fresh start and new goals and practices. And I would encourage and challenge you to take on reading through the New Testament in its entirety this year. Because Matthew, right through Revelation, and perhaps nowhere more strongly than in those two books themselves, Matthew and Revelation, the whole New Testament, it's all about hope in the life to come, in the return of Jesus. The hope of Jesus, it's on every page. And our culture pines for justice. A city like Vancouver pines for justice, for equality, for love, for all of the things, all of the attributes of his kingdom. But they want the kingdom without the king. And on a regular basis, people around us inject some kind of messianic hope into a politician or a medical breakthrough or whatever else, and in the end are let down. And the gospel truth is that the government is on his shoulders, not ours. That Jesus is our savior and that the bulk of our salvation is yet to come. This is good news. So our hope is that Jesus will return to make all things new. And the second thing that we mean when we say our hope is in God is that while we wait, while we wait for Jesus to return, he is with us. While we wait, Jesus is with us. I had the privilege of preaching two weeks ago at The Bridge. It's a church in North Vancouver, and they were working through this series in the book of Acts. And they were working like exegetically text by text through the second half of the book of Acts. Which quite frankly is a pretty crazy thing to do. This church is a bit nuts. Because the second half of the book of Acts is a lot of narrative about Paul traveling. And trying to preach that text by text can be challenging. I was handed a text to preach and said, you know, have fun with it. It was in Acts chapter 27. It was on Paul making a journey on a boat to Rome to make his appeal before Caesar. Try taking that and bringing a real, like, pastoral application behind a boat trip to Rome. And so I went into this feeling like, what in the world is this church doing? This is nuts. And I started to study and started to, to write this message for this church. But there was a, a verse in the middle of the text in Acts 27 that really shook me. As I was preparing, there's this verse right in the middle, and it completely shook me. 
And the context is as they're on this boat ride, you can, you can probably expect it because this is Paul and it seems to always happen. It's supposed to be this leg of the trip is supposed to be this quick little, quick little jut up to another town because it's a better place to stay for the winter. It's supposed to be a pretty low event trip. Quick, not long, all this stuff. And as they go on it, this last little leg of their trip, they get hit by this storm, this huge, massive storm. It's called the Northeaster. And, you know, if your storm has a name, you know it's bad. So they're in this storm, and it completely consumes them. And they're in over their heads. They're professional sailors on this boat. It's not just a little thing. This is real. And they're completely consumed by this storm. They start throwing things off the boat. They throw off their, their luggage, their, the ship's tackle, like the gear. They're just, they're panic mode. All is going nuts. And this verse in the middle of the text says, in Acts 27, verse 20, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. We finally gave up all hope of being saved. It's a dramatic line, right? Like it's dramatically written. It feels like a line for a movie. It's harrowing. All hope is lost. All hope has been blotted out. There are even visual dramatic representations of like the depths of this emotional state in the midst of the storm. It says all light has been blocked out. It's no sun, no stars for days. This is as bleak and dark as, as life could possibly get. It's over. It's over. What's the point? All hope is lost. And I know that this place is quite relatable. Maybe not in a boat in a storm, but this place of all hope being lost, seeing no light on the horizon, no sun nor stars for days, just all hope is lost. I know that this place is relatable. Many of us know that place or many like it. Feeling alone along the journey. Feeling like God is incredibly far away. Feeling like light has been blocked out and it's impossible to see anything on the horizon. I know that's a familiar place for many people But the next thing that happens in that story is the key pivot point for them and for us. What happens next, right after that line, that line in verse 20, the next verse is verse 21. And in it, God speaks to Paul in a vision. And he gives promise and direction for the days that are to come. He says, all lives will be spared and so on and so on and so on. Here's what's going to happen. And what matters in this moment in the story for us is less the direct message that the vision brings, though I'm certainly glad they all survived, don't get me wrong. But what matters for us, I think, in that story is that at the bleakest moment, where all light was blocked out, and all hope had been lost, where Paul and the sailors felt alone and far from God or anyone else, maybe in a way more so than they'd ever experienced in their lives, God reminded them that in that moment, In that very moment, he was right there with them in the storm. That he saw them. That they were seen in the storm. And I I share this story because this really is the hope of Advent. This is the hope brought about by the incarnation of God to earth. See, Advent introduces Emmanuel. Emmanuel is God with us. And that didn't just mean as a baby boy in a manger who was now going to be with those people in the Middle East for 30 or so years. 
And an Emmanuel God with us doesn't even just mean that he's going to return to us in the future to rescue us all again and be with us again. It means those things, but it doesn't just mean those things. Advent introduces Emmanuel. And Emmanuel means that God is with us now, even now in an intimate way never known before. And he will be with us by his spirit until he brings us home to rest in glory. That through it all, in the storm, whatever storms we walk in life, even as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, God is with us. This is the hope of Advent. Because Advent introduces Emmanuel, that even as we wait for his return in glory, for the ultimate fulfillment of the kingdom of God, Jesus is with us by his Spirit. You're not alone. Even when you feel far from God, like hope is blotted out, like you're in the midst of the storm, God is with you. You're not alone. He sees you in the storm. You are seen in the storm. This is the hope of Emmanuel. We get to wake up in the morning and find a quiet place and just look at God looking at us in love. He sees us. And let his love heal us and set us free. And nothing, nothing, that's no suffering, no death, no job loss, no relational breakdown can separate us from that loving presence of God at the center of it all. This is the good news of Advent. This is the hope of Advent, the hope of Emmanuel. So our hope is in the fact that Jesus will return to make all things new. That in the meantime, as we wait, he's with us. And lastly, it's in the fact that Jesus will form us into people of love. Jesus will form us into people of love. If I haven't made this abundantly clear yet, the hope of Advent is not just about what happens when all our dreams come true, but when our worst nightmares come true too. The hope of Advent is for that moment as well. That even then, when your suffering is most acute, it's not in vain. Now, I want to be clear this morning. I'm not somebody who believes that God controls absolutely everything in the sense that he has some secret plan behind all the suffering in our lives. I don't believe that God allows evil. I think he allows free will. And this is a much bigger conversation. If you want to have it, let's get a coffee. Or maybe for that conversation, we need to get a beer. Uh, either way, we'll figure it out. Big conversation. But the point is, I only say this to say, as followers of Jesus, all followers of Jesus from across the theological spectrum, whatever you believe about that, we agree that wherever suffering comes from, it goes to good if we open it up to God. That wherever suffering comes from, it goes to the good if we open it up and bring it to God. I think the most faithful reading of the New Testament leads to the conclusion that the purpose for our life on earth is to become a person of love. To quote John Mark Comer again, he writes this, Life itself is a school of agape, which is a Greek word for the love we're talking about, where we learn under Jesus' tutelage how to grow and mature into people of love who have the character and capacity to co-rule over the kingdom with Jesus upon his return. Jesus defined love in this way in John 15. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down their life for their friends. And if this is love, it's not tolerance, you know, this cultural idea of, you know, you do you. If this is love, it's not desire, 
what many in our world know, think of love to be, this idea that I want you is really what it boils down to. If this isn't love, not even warm affection, that's not what Jesus is talking about here. If this is love, to desire the good of another ahead of your own, no matter the cost to yourself, if that's love, then that means that love itself is a form of self-giving. Love is giving up your seat on the bus, getting up in the middle of the night to comfort your crying child. I've been loving a lot lately. Uh, Love is making a concession of personal preference for the sake of something bigger or giving away your money to those in need. It's self-giving. And if this is what love is, then all self-giving is a form of suffering, right? Or to put it another way, learning how to suffer well is learning how to love. The primary way we become these people of love, these people of agape, is by learning to suffer lovingly. Because this is perfectly Emmanuel. This is perfectly God with us. The son of suffering. That is our hope. Not that the bad will happen to us because we're Christians, but that no matter what happens to us, we're not alone. And Jesus will use it to form us and mold us into people of love and peace and joy and hope. So this is our hope. Quickly to run back over those three things. This is our hope. That Jesus will return to make all things new. That while we wait, Jesus is with us. And that Jesus will form us into people of love. This is our hope. This is the hope of Advent. But to conclude, I want to read a lyric from a song called Peace on Earth by U2. Maybe you've heard of them. They're this little band from Ireland. Um... It's a song called Peace on Earth, and there's a lyric in it that says this. I think it's really profound. It says, Jesus, in the song you wrote, the words are sticking in my throat. Peace on earth. Hear it every Christmas time, but hope in history won't rhyme. Peace on earth. Hear it every Christmas time, but hope in history won't rhyme. When it comes to hope, I want to acknowledge as we finish, when it comes to hope, especially in a year like 2023, with all that's currently going on around our world, there's this crying out inside of us that that the idea of hope seems incongruent with our world, with our lives, that, that hope and history just won't rhyme. I feel that. I really do. I feel that this Christmas maybe more than ever. There's so much tension in this year's approach to Christmas. I'm sure many of us feel that in this room. But then this thought stabilizes my soul. God never pretended that the arrival of Jesus was a quick fix for humanity's woes. From day one, Jesus himself was swaddled in suffering. Think of the stable. Think of the long trip to Egypt of Herod's Bethlehem massacre. And then, of course, later, naked on a cross, suffering was his only covering. But the suffering that surrounded Jesus throughout his life and the suffering that he experienced firsthand did not suffocate him. Humanity's hurt moved him. It did not overwhelm him. Sin broke his heart. It did not break his joy. 
And the birth and life of Jesus did change everything. I'm believing it again with fresh feeling as we approach Christmas this year. It changed everything. Advent, Christmas changed everything. The birth of this baby boy changed everything, but perhaps not in the way or on the timeline that we had hoped. We had hoped that it would be different. But our hope, our real hope, is in the person and promises of the God who sees it all, the God who knows our frame, who knows better than anyone the extremities of pain and injustice, of the suffering that we endure, and the God who came to take it all on himself, and the God who will come again to take it all to its final grave. We have hope because our hope is in the person and promises of this God. The God who in the meantime is walking with us, forming us day by day into people of his own character, people of love. That is our hope. That is our hope of Advent. That is our hope at Christmas 2023. And I want to I close with this quote from a man named Brian Marikin. He's the, the president of this spiritual formation organization called Renovare. Um, and he wrote this in an email that he sent out to those of us on the email list. And it's, it's this kind of poem from the perspective of God. It's a response to many of our questions and longings and cryings out at Christmas. So I want to invite you, if you're comfortable, to close your eyes. I'm just going to read this over us. Read this as a bit of a response to God of hope at Christmas hope at Advent, and just allow this to speak to our hearts as we hear. It says this, Life on earth matters. People matter. Pain matters. When I made all I made in the way I made it, I knew what I was doing. I understood the cost of free will, which I know may seem hard to believe. So I'll take on your frame. I'll experience all you feel and more. I'll show you how to live at peace in a troubled world, how to be an unhurried and healing presence. I'll come in the flesh to be an example to you. Then I'll come in the spirit to be life in you. My rescue will be fast. Your adoption will be quick as a hammer's swing. My rescue will be slow. Millennia will pass before the fullness of the kingdom comes. But my slowness is not cruelty or lack of care. On the contrary, I'm birthing a people of everlasting joy. And that takes time. Let's pray. Lord God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you at Advent more than any other time of year for the reminder of the hope that we have as we navigate this life. Lord, we can't have a message about hope without acknowledging the realities of pain, the realities of suffering in this world, especially in a year like this. The things that we all come to church on a Sunday to hear a message about Christmas and a message on hope, but in the back of our minds, there's a whole lot of things there. There's a lot of reality, lived experience, relational discord, grieving and mourning and loss, job insecurity, financial insecurity. There's a lot of things 
that we bring into this conversation. We watch the news in the evening and we see a lot of things that cause us to question the hope that we know we're to have. But Lord, at Advent, we thank you that we know the truth behind it all, which is that you know our frame. You know the pain and suffering and injustice better than any of us. You took it all on yourself. And the hope that we have is that you see us in it, you're with us in it, and you are bringing us to a future of perfect beauty where all wrong and pain and suffering and injustice is done away with. And our eternal state, our eternal place is in perfection with you. That you are the king of the kingdom of righteousness, of goodness, of love and peace and joy and hope. And we look to you for hope at Advent, trusting in your person and promises. Lord, thank you that we get to navigate the realities of this life with that hope. Jesus, may you continue to be our hope. Come Holy Spirit. We pray this in your name. Amen. The reality-